right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, gather round. I don't care if it's the, the mobile phone, you're on your way to work. I don't care if it is uh, the, the TV, you got us on Spotify. Wherever it is, you guys are in the right place. Um, turn it up. We are excited. We are passionate about the crypto revolution and all of our guests who come on here. And we've got an incredible guest. You guys know me. I'm Bryce. Brendan, how are you doing today, my man? You know, I'm doing pretty good. Crypto you got a migraine. You were texting me earlier. I hope you're uh, you're feeling a little better. You know, I am feeling <laughs> a little bit better. I think that the uh, the bull market is helping me out. It's like my pocket vitamin D. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy. You know, uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, the whole market trading really well. Whew, we've been here for 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 several years, and uh, it's I felt like a big breath of relief kind of today as as the market just continues to roll roll higher. Um, you know, coming out of just a bear market and the bear market breeds skepticism and it breeds all sorts of stuff. But what a bear market also does is it cleans up the space. Um, we've had um, just complete liquidations of, of leverage and bad actors from the Doquans, uh, from the SBFs and um, CZ from Binance just kind of made his uh, his departure. And so, you know, the, the, the bull markets are fun, um, but, you know, we really earn it during a bear market. Um, because, uh, you know, it, it's, it's been a long time coming when we see really, really uh, fun, you know, high rate of change to the upside prices. But um, things are good and things are evolving on many different fronts. And, and we've got an incredible guest today. Um, and I, I want to introduce you guys to him. His name is Bill Hughes. And he works for an awesome company called Consensus, where he's senior counsel and director of global regulatory matters. Um, and we're going to have a, a wide ranging discussion about crypto policy and, 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 and regulation. Bill, Thank you so much for coming on to the Crypto 101 podcast. We, we really appreciate it. My pleasure to be here. It's nice to be with you guys. Yeah. And um, we really just want to, you know, have this podcast uh, be a, um, you know, be one of those things that people could kind of look to and say, hey, I'm kind of confused about crypto policy or regulation or, or what I should care about, right? You know, what what are those things that I should be looking at? So we're going to try and get that from you. But before we do that, we want to we want to know about your background. I mean, you've got in in very impressive background. I'm I'm, I'm going to save my words. I'll let you you tell the audience, but um, go go for it. Um, we're really excited to hear about uh, the things that you uh, you've been doing leading into crypto. Well, appreciate it. Um, uh, whether it's impressive or not, uh, I'll 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 let the the listener be the judge of that. I, I'm <laughs> hopefully too modest to express it one way or another. I started out as an attorney um, joining the legal marketplace back when um, uh, the financial crisis was happening. Um, I clerked for a year and joined a prestigious firm um, as a litigator up in New York City. The firm was Sullivan and Cromwell. It has um, a name that that has been playing a little bit uh, in the in stories about um, various crypto controversies so far. They've they're a longtime Wall Street firm. I was there for a while, both in New York and D.C. Um, I left because a, a friend and a mentor of mine asked me to take on an operational role at uh, the White House when Donald Trump um, entered office. He was not previously affiliated with um, President Trump, uh, uh, so it was quite a shock to me that he was um, given a very high-level position uh, running operations for the White House and asked me to help him. Um, I took a little zig out of the normal uh, tried and true legal path um, to work with him for two years. Enjoyed that immensely. 
um, running an operational unit of the White House itself, left from there to join the Department of Justice when Bill Barr became attorney general, uh, worked with a lot of uh, uh, friends and associates in uh, the upper echelons of the Department of Justice. I worked for the deputy attorney general, um, uh, who is sort of like the chief operating officer running the day-to-day of the department. And I covered a number of areas of the of the department um, related to a lot of the civil litigation uh, it uh, the Department of Justice um, is responsible for on behalf of the federal government um, I also helped run a task force and and other sort of strategic response to the covid 19 um, pandemic and and the government response to it um, and in part uh, that's where I started to get my feet wet a little bit into um, nasty subjects like money laundering and uh, defraud, defrauding the government and the like. Um, during my time there, not much in terms of sub- subject matter did I do with um, crypto. There was a crypto report that was put out in late 2020. Uh, my next door neighbor, um, who who is who has left the Department of Justice and now works in crypto himself, uh, was sort of the lead author on it. And I got to comment and complain that it wasn't sufficiently supportive of uh, crypto. What was the paper called? I'm sorry? What was the paper called? forget what it's called, but if you can look it up, it was November or December of 2022. It was like an analysis of like criminal activity and crypto assets. And essentially it does what a lot of Department of Justice reports do. It's essentially a book report that rehashes a lot of old cases in which uh, digital assets were um, the, a mechanism through which money laundering was executed. It was a platform on which criminal activity was conducted. Um you know, Silk Road being the um, preeminent example. Um, but I, I didn't really work on that stuff individually. What I did know is that um, starting in 2017, I just found the whole space fascinating. I'm not a tech native guy, um, even though, you know, growing up in D.C. and being around Northern Virginia, where it's a big hotbed of like Internet tech activity specifically, never really had much of a touch point to it. I did decide um, to maybe give, I didn't want to go back to the firm. I did want to decide to give uh, the crypto thing a go. Got hooked up with consensus pretty quickly because I cold LinkedIn messaged uh, a former Sullivan and Cromwell attorney who moved over to the product side at consensus. Hit it off with him after reconnecting with him. Uh, and then, you know, several months later um, and talk after talking to a lot of crypto companies back in 2021 when the market was really hot and the market for hiring lawyers was really hot. I, I ended up joining Consensus and uh, um, it's just turned out to be a fantastic place to be. I love being on the software development side of crypto. Um, and I love being in a place where we're, we're building a lot of tools and infrastructure um, and on the cutting edge of a lot of those aspects which make the programmable blockchain ecosystem so fascinating and so challenging. So that's my J job. And I also get to dabble in policy and, um, you know, um, have to think about new and challenging questions. And if I'm lucky, come up with a coherent answer or even an approach um, that's worth further discussion among policymakers and the community in general. So that's what I do now. It's incredible. Um, I have to ask, and I, I don't know, um, I got to ask what it was like working at the White House. Um, I know that must be 
a huge honor um, to serve your country in that capacity. But yeah, any any thoughts uh, that you could share uh, with us? It is. You show up every day at work pinching yourself. Um, it was actually my second stint as a White House employee. Oh, wow. The first was right after I got out of college, I did advance, which is so impossibly cool for a kid that age. It, it's beyond words. But this time I came in, I was set up with a very fancy office in the corner of the Eisenhower Executive Office building. Um, the room used to belong to, to Dean Atchison, who is the Assistant Secretary of State during um, the World War II, a very famous wow. um, official from, what, 70, uh, 90 years ago by now, or 80 years ago. Um, the the organization I ran is almost entirely civil service. So these are the people who are the backbone of the operations of the White House. We're very closely with White House uh, Secret Service, the, the presidential protective detail, which secures the compound and secures the president. A lot of whom I remembered back from my, day, my days in my early 20s who were just shift guys. And now they had run, risen to the level of like running the Secret Service itself, which was really cool to see. And uh, a lot of the folks in the White House military office who are in charge of Air Force One, in charge of Marine One and the helicopters, in charge of all of the military support that the president gets working shoulder to shoulder with those guys on everything was tremendously rewarding. So um, both that time and my time at DOJ working with, you know, federal law enforcement agents and, and other federal officials on a slew of issues, um, I think has served uh, a greater purpose very well. Like I'm very comfortable talking with law enforcement, I'm very comfortable talking with um, senior officials because that's what you had to do, you know, Speak at the White language. House. You, you've you sat in the situation room for classified meetings. And once you've done that, um, you know, not a lot of stuff can get your blood pressure to rise. Yeah. And, and it's crazy because, you know, having done that and, and with kind of all that knowledge that you have and all that experience and really that view into the world that most people don't have, you decided to work at Consensus and, and kind of dive feet first into crypto. Insane, um, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, what was it? What, what do you see in crypto? Um, I think crypto captured my imagination unlike anything else previously had. And I had not, the, the biggest criticism I leveled at myself is that I becoming a litigator, the only thing you're really going to be an expert at, unless you really specialize in a particular area is litigation. And let's just say it wasn't my, the, it wasn't my life's grail to be some expert litigator. Um, and so you didn't really know a space all that well. I just came to crypto sort of organically and, and on my own and found that I would had to just voraciously learn about it and learn about stuff that normally I wouldn't care about. Like, trying to understand all the cryptography around Bitcoin, which, you know, I tried very hard at and can't pretend that I came close, but um, it made, I, I, from my time in government, I knew precisely what I did well and what I didn't do well. I really had to like a subject to do well at it because I needed to be obsessive about learning about it and being able to communicate effectively about it. Otherwise, if I don't care, I literally don't care and I'll go through the motions. I think that's probably true about a lot of people. Um, I just started to listen to myself when I was telling myself that. And so I just started to lean into what I would enjoy gaining, building some sort of expertise in. 
once I did that and I sort of jumped off the boat with no life raft and no life preserver and had to start swimming, um, it, it sort of built upon itself and I enjoyed the process as much, um, as anything else. And, and I think that's helped me tremendously. And, and so really it was a subject matter. It was the opportunity to every day continue to learn something that not only was very tech specific, but also it, it dovetails so nicely with the regulatory and the legal background that I have. And really now more than any time that there's a confluence between the two and a necessary one where the, the hardest questions and the hardest questions still are on the tech side and on the market side, but short second place is, um, or, or close second place is what from a public policy standpoint, do we do with all of this that's getting built and how people are using it? It's an incredibly difficult set of problems. Um, and every answer yields more problems and upsets other, <laughs> other things that you thought were already solved for. So, um, some days I'd love a more quiet, pastoral, uh, even keeled <laughs> yeah, professional where <laughs> there aren't these constantly, um, nagging existential questions around every corner, but, um, where we're at I, right now, I, I think, uh, picking something where you do have them is kind of more exciting and more rewarding. What's the easiest choice you can make window instead of middle seat, picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket, outsourcing business tasks you hate. What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. So. I feel like it's also probably like how a lot of people felt during like when the internet was just coming out. It's like every every time it expands, you know, it, mm-hmm. it begs a new question and there's a new application. It begs a new question. And every like you said, it's existential. Everything, you know, this is do we deserve this deal. technology? Do we not? Should how do we, yeah. you know, uh, you know, um, shepherd it in the right direction and how do we stay hands free? 
Right. I, I, I think that's, I think that's true. And the, the analogy, it's, it's a good, it's as good an analogy as we have. The problem is it is incomplete. Mm. The disruption of the internet is not as serious as the disruption of crypto on the internet, simply because new mechanisms to create and share information or to access information is one thing. It's revolutionary changes us, society, how everything works tremendously. But once you add to that how we transact, like actual economic activity amongst people in a, in a way that is, is truly cross-border, the mind reels, the, the level of regulatory um, framework around economic activity and financial activity is to such a greater degree than simple information sharing or communication or the like, although communication is a very heavily regulated space. So the, I, I so maybe I was, um, it's bigger. You know, it's big, I, crypto is bigger than the internet. It, it, it is in many respects and, and some of the problems and, and the processes to get a, to solve them are going to look like, you know, what happened in the eighties and nineties and some are going to be entirely new. Do you ever see a world where blockchain has a place or a use case in the U.S. government or really any government for that matter? You mean the government using blockchain? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I think to a certain extent, well, the clearest use case right now is that it's a transaction record of markets that they need to supervise. So you can use it even though you yourself don't control the record. You know, Department of Justice and other law enforcement agencies use the blockchain to track and identify and track criminal activity. Um, they use it as a record for um, an that that is evidence in court. Um, mm. To use it for its own operational purposes, absolutely. The vaunted but but also you know also elusive use cases um, such as record keeping and and the like. Um, I think we'll eventually see them. And we're not just talking about the federal level, too. I think there's there's a lot more that, you know, when we talk about how does government use blockchain, a lot of the general welfare stuff that the federal government does not do in the United States, state and local governments do. And the reason why it's local governments don't do it very well is because the infrastructure to do it well is really expensive. Well, guess what? Great thing about a permissionless blockchain is a lot of the infrastructure is there for you. You just need to tap into it. This is why permissionless blockchains generally do better than permission chains. Permission chains, very expensive on the infrastructure front. Permissionless, you pay as you play because you don't have to do the infrastructure. So it's plug and play for um, if you have the right applications, the right services built in, it's plug and play for federal, local and state governments for a variety of activities, which you know have yet to be um, developed, uh, but I believe will. Um, and so it's, I think it's going to be pervasive. Maybe not everything goes to it, right? CIA is not, you know, run, <laughs> um, classified, classified things necessarily on public, on public blockchains. But, um, I, I think it's, everybody's going to use it. The question is like when and for what it's not going to be everything to everybody. Um, but the governments are always looking for a cheaper, smarter, more reliable way to do stuff. And that will include blockchain. Yeah, absolutely. And, and hopefully, um, 
you know, we could even get more more transparency around voting on the blockchain or having some kind of solutions around that. There's so many things to just clean up, even fighting fraud on some entitlement payments or, you know, right. being able to have just much more verification around who's receiving, you know, and where your taxes are going and all this, this shit. This, this is where it really requires a change in mentality. Uh, let's start, let's keep on the government level, on the federal government level, yeah. a change in mentality with respect to how new ideas are um, ingested and scrutinized and then applied by government. Said simply, the federal procurement process is an utter nightmare. Um, but um, the way blockchain is going to improve is that government gives it the space, essentially comes up with like a central problem, uh, a set of problems that blockchain projects can try to solve. And once they start solving them, that they can be part of, um, you know, procurement officers, policymakers, operational people in government can aren't aren't taught that there's a stigma with blockchain technology um, to where those sorts of solutions are cut out of the mix of things that you can consider. So that's going to take some time, um, many, many, many years, I would imagine, but it's going to happen. Yeah. Wow. No. Do you think that like, like kind of with that stigma and all that stuff, governments in some way, shape or form fear crypto or maybe as matters of national security or maybe even as an existential thing? Is that a legitimate fear or is it kind of just a pipe dream of us crypto kids? Um, they fear um, a system which creates more problems for society than benefits and changes the dynamics aware the the tools um, and methods that government has to reduce risk or eliminate risk and make things better um, are rendered useless. So that's the problem. Um, despite what a, a number of loud, um, no, notably loud people in the community have to say, you know, government, at least in the West, at least in liberal uh, democratic societies like ours, are designed first and foremost to protect the population, ensure that they're given a, a space that allows them to sort of, um, you know, um, operate as productively as possible, uh, both for themselves and their community. Um, sometimes government overdoes it, sometimes it underdoes it, but it's generally the right mix, right? Um, there are people whose charge it is, whose mission it is literally to keep people safe to disrupt bad people from doing bad things that hurt us collectively or individually. You can think of a million different tools or systems that have been created that in the end fail because they generated more risks for society than benefits or the risks were more pronounced and thus it, it just simply wasn't something that um, society generally or policymakers specifically said, we want to we don't want to have any part of this. Right. Um, and that's just the way it is. Like think about um, air travel at the, at the dawn of the aerospace age, you could make your own airplane and there were no rules against flying it around yourself. <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> but because no one had planes and the people who had to build planes, uh, who, who built planes were, you know, very specialized people. And then you had to like regulate it because it was very dangerous yeah. and <clears throat> you couldn't just let anybody fly. And, and if people wanted to run a business using an airplane, 
And that was then um, the government was, you know, thought it should be responsible for ensuring that the business is reasonably safe and people weren't hurt. This is a, and, and the reason why I, I point to analogies is like that is like, there's this huge stigma to regulating crypto. Um, my problem with regulation is, is the how, um, and that gets almost to be an infinitely complex question of the how, but the courts are telling us how not with the SEC yeah. failing three in a row, I guess. Um, th that is true. I, I, but my point is like, I think we should recognize that, that there are risks in the crypto ecosystem with intermediating, intermediating our economic lives with software instead of intermediaries. And that the ways to mitigate that risk isn't just going to be in the tech, right? So the public policy can, and I believe should play a role. The question is what? And also the question is, how do we answer what role? Um, some people want to prejudge the question. I think of more deliberate processes, right? But there, there, there's a lot to think about. Um, and, I'm you sorry, know, I get I very philosophical about this stuff, but that's where no, it's good. This Hey, you're on, you're in the right place to, to philosophize and all that stuff. Um, our listeners love it. Um, and we, we love listening to it and we get so many of our questions answered. And, um, you know, when, when it comes to, you know, crypto policy, um, and consensus, you know, what are, what are you working on, you know, on maybe a day to day or a week to week basis at consensus and how is that kind of furthering, um, your vision of what, what the world should be? So my job is to both give in-house legal advice and to think about the policy landscape. And I view it from the, like, what do we do? We create software and software as a service offerings that allow people to use the peer-to-peer -peer programmable blockchain ecosystem, which is in, first and foremost, Ethereum, but anything that you can, has a programmable digital ledger space um, where you can make a programmable accounting system, programmable money, that's the sort of software space we're operating in. And so question one is, what do current regulations say about what we are doing now, um, how people are using our software, or, or projects we're working on? Um, areas in, of the space we may want to enter into. And then question number two is, well, what's the regulatory landscape going to be? And, and I'm not talking about just in the United States. I'm talking about around the world. Next question, so that's half my job. The other half is thinking, well, where are, where are the regs going? What are the laws doing around the world and where we're gonna be in five years? And um, what, how does that affect um, what we're building today, how we're operating today? Because we all know that the way we operate today, a regulator or law enforcement five years from now may look back and say, huh, we actually have a new interpretation of our law and what you were doing five years ago doesn't seem to be consistent with it. And we want to talk to you about that. That's always something that people in this space um, have to deal with, have to live with. But, you know, um, to the extent that we can have a say or have some influence over how uh, regulation um, is thought about, how public policy is thought about as it pertains to the space, both, both in the United States and overseas, that's also what we do. So I have to, you know, read a lot and write a lot. A lot of um, what what agencies um, want consultation about. Um, you know, there there's in the United States there have been a number of proposed rulemakings um, or requests for comment where we've um, sent in our thoughts. 
making points as it relates to, to educating as to you know what our software is about and how it's used, but also how we see what they propose affecting the greater ecosystem and um, pointing out those areas where um, we think it may be problematic in a way that they care about. I mean, what should like what do you think that our listeners should be calling their congressmen about? Like, what are the most important ongoing issues that are being voted on or that are maybe coming up to be voted on inside the United States? Because especially when it comes to the area of crypto, there is it seems like two very strong sides to these arguments. So I'm curious to just kind of get your thoughts on that. Sure. I think first things first, you regulate the intermediated crypto ecosystem before you regulate the disintermediated part. And what that means is exchanges and stablecoins, regulate them. There's a bill right now to regulate stablecoins. It looks potentially like it could get um, reanimated, get new energy behind it at the start of the new year. And um, Sorry, what does that talk about when it comes to regulating stable coins? Like, what would that look like for the stable coin space? Um, to be able to offer uh, stable coins uh, in the United States, um, it would need to be regulated in a certain way that it's more akin to a financial institution. So, being transparent with um, your reserves, how and and how you're operating to ensure that there's some. We're not just taking your word for it that everything's yeah. on the up and up. Um, a lot of, <laughs> uh, you know, talk about it, you know, people talk about blockchain is trustless and all that stuff. There's no organization in the history of, of this ecosystem um, or in perhaps tech that is more trusted than Tether because everyone just has to take it on faith that they're doing things on the up and up and they have tens of billions of dollars. Um under their control. So it's a very important company and they aren't nearly as regulated as they should be by any stretch of the imagination. So stable coins should, and it makes sense. They are a business running a service that relies on software, relies on blockchain, but they are a centralized service providing. Uh, and and um, they, given their size, if something went wrong, do present systemic risk. There's a lot of reasons why public policy would say we need to regulate you just to make sure that you guys are acting appropriately and there's nothing unduly risky to hurt that would hurt a lot of people. Entirely fair. I also think it would be good to do that because then, you know, once you have the imprimatur, the blessing of regulation, that means a lot more people can get involved. Maybe more banks and financial institutions start using stable coins because it's better than their wire transfer system, which it is. Um, so I think it really also opens the door to a whole new class of participant that has been standing on the sidelines because they don't want to mess around. They can't mess around with entities that may be on the fringe of the law. Yeah. So it, it almost seems like crypto should be regulated, like different areas of crypto should be regulated in different ways. Like stable coins should be addressed one way. Uh, maybe DeFi should be addressed in another way. Centralized should, exchanges should be regulated differently than decentralized exchanges. Because when you look at a lot of the implosion that happened over this bear market, a lot of it was because of centralized sources causing the problems. And you, when you look at the true decentralized protocol and the true decentralized platforms, a lot of those came out near, pretty much unscathed. And then all the ones that had centralized interference were the ones that imploded, whether it was because of malintent, whether it was because of fear or greed or anything else in between. That is where we saw the problem. So I really like this idea of saying, instead of just 
broadly getting like a really broad brush and painting regulation across the whole board of crypto, we need to get these fine tuned brushes for each specific area. And I, you know, I truly do believe that that's the proper way to regulate this because all these different industries are working for different things in the same way that you wouldn't have someone say, Hey, because this is applicable to Microsoft, we're all of a sudden going to make it applicable to like, I don't know, like a big chain, like Best Buy, right? You know, two completely different business models. They're not going to be, they're not going to have the same rules because they're two separate entities and two separate, you know, industries. So yeah, I like that. Well, I mean, when you think about energy, are wind turbines regulated the same as coal fire power plants are regulated the same as exactly. nuclear plants as regulated the same as um, uh, uh, ethanol the hydroelectric <laughs> dams? No, they're everything. Um, there's an act. There's a recognition that based on the level of uh, the type of activity, even though they're generally producing electricity, the way in which they're doing it presents different risks and different benefits. And so the regulatory regime around each one of those activities needs to be unique. Same thing with crypto. Stable coin bill, really sensible. It should go first. Uh, there are mar- There's a market structure bill that um, Chairman Patrick McHenry has put forward. It's not perfect in all respects, but what it pr- does get right to a large extent is a mechanism through which uh, Patrick McHenry and uh, Chairman Thompson from the Agriculture Committee, I don't want to leave the agriculture committee out of it, but it, it puts first things first, centralized intermediaries like exchanges. We need a regulatory structure for them beyond just them being money services, businesses and money transmission businesses. Um, that should be second. So much activity goes through them. And then we need a new framework for the question of how should software uh, that allows um, that is on chain or there are software tools that exist off chain but facilitate on chain transactions. How do we regulate, if, if at all, the development and use of that software? And that is where the conversation gets really tricky. Consensus we make smart contracts for various services, we may obviously make off chain tools like the MetaMask wallet. We have the Infura node service, which is basically, you know, a node that you use for free if you use MetaMask. But if you're a developer and you use it enough, maybe you got to pay for it like it's a pay to play service. There are a variety of different things you can build. Um, And then the question of smart contracts on chain. What is the smart contract doing? Our legislative approach so far has been, it all appears to be generally the same. So we're just going to say blockchain software and we're going to regulate it in some amorphous black, like block, some monolithic thing. It's clearly wrong. Um, And I think that while there are efforts that we will see go forward in 2024 to regulate blockchain software, um, particularly in the anti-money laundering context, I think that other... proposals that call for a more cautious, thoughtful approach are actually better. And you actually see these approaches being taken in Europe where they uh, a report on how to deal with DeFi, which is kind of sort of how they're describing or categorizing this entire concept of regulating software. Those reports that are the first part of a regulatory process are due at the end of 2024. So Europe has taken its time to think about this, and I think rightfully so. I think we should as well. But you're exactly right. It's a heterodox ecosystem. 
Um, and it really requires a particularized analysis um, of the various things going on in order to smartly tailor real solutions that mitigate risk without just killing everything. Yeah, no, it, it sounds like, um, you know, kind of this approach that they're taking, I think it's kind of touching on something you just said, um, maybe like two minutes or three minutes ago, where they're kind of kind of going after the intermediated areas first. And I think some of the notable actions we've seen, uh, Grayscale, for one, um, we've seen Coinbase, which I always thought was funny because Coinbase went public under the same kind of reasonings they were getting mm -hmm. sued for. So that's a whole different thing. And then, um, who was the other one? Oh, PayPal, right? They issued a stable coin. And here they're thinking PayPal, they're a public yep. company, Fortune 500 or something. And then they get sued for a stable coin. So we really do need these, these bills to come through because mm -hmm. these intermediated choke points um, are simply getting choked out, right? And in, in, in America, it's getting stifled everywhere. But elsewhere, right? We just got off the phone with somebody in, in Dubai doing another podcast. This is the this is the place to be. Everything's going on. Talk to somebody in Singapore. This is the place to be. Everything's going on. And so um yeah, hopefully we get it all get it all going in the right direction soon. Are, are you feeling confident that America is going to get it act, its act together uh, either under this administration or is it going to take a whole new administration? I think it's going to take a new administration, but if I think back to 2017, where the concept of crypto regulation had not even come up yet. And back then, the trope was, well, uh, this is all fun and a cool hobby, but once regulation comes, it's going to blow all this silly internet money stuff out of the water. And there's no, and quote unquote, serious people said, I, you guys are going to be banned. Like, why don't you just ban it? This is dumb. Um, <laughs> Shut it in, down. <laughs> in 2020, uh, I, I go go back to that DOJ report where it was for the first time, while, while they didn't belabor this point, the, the thrust of the report wasn't crypto is for criminals. That wasn't the thrust of the report. The thrust of the report was um, this is a new technology and this is how criminals are using it. If you look at the recent reports, and I believe me, very market I, I, shift. It, 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 there's a complete f uh, shift in in um, framing from across the government. Um, I was at the Blockchain Policy Summit. I convened a panel of DOJ, FinCEN, and FBI. They very much do not view crypto, uh, both from the, the the onstage conversation I had with them and all the conversations I've had offstage with them view crypto as the problem. They view North Korea as the problem. They right. view hackers as the problem. They're not blaming the technology. And and even um, Deputy Secretary uh, Adiermo, um, who came and, uh, you know, gave a speech, which is not without its share of problems. But again, his message isn't um, the purposefully antagonistic message of like a Gensler. Um, his message is... This is here to stay. We need to make it. We need to mitigate risks. We have our method of doing it. The way the way that is, we think works based on our experience, and we're happy for new ideas. But make no mistake, we we cannot live with this risk profile that we're currently facing. So, 
we need Congress to act and we need to work with other countries. And and the simple point is like, look, this is this is um, explicit or or more often implicit adoption of crypto as a thing that's here to stay. And the question is the method of its greater, more broad implementation across a larger adoption pool. Crypto people think it's going to happen or want it to happen a certain way. The, and look, they're, the powers that be are going to have an influence into how this evolves. And so, which is why I think engagement with them seriously and soberly and, and not in sort of like the sneering Twitter way actually can yield real um, dividends and more importantly, avoid some very nasty outcomes. And I, and I really do think um, like, you know, this is, this is kind of tangential, but this Bitcoin ETF, I think it's going to change the psychology of people, you know, worldwide. I mean, now that you're going to be able, like, I was talking to my dad about it, right? He's like, oh, now I'll be able to finally buy Bitcoin just in my, you know, BlackRock or, or what would he, his Charles Schwab account and his Fidelity account. Like, that changes things. And I think it changes the minds of regulators. It changes the mind, you know, outside of just even, um, you know, the SEC, it, you know, changes the mind of, you know, people all around the world. So I think that, you know, when that comes, it's, it's really going to help policy, you know, kind of, you know, tip the scale in that direction. Um, it'll make it less of an uphill battle, I guess is what I'm trying to say. We're no longer fighting our case that, hey, this thing's legit. Like, no, BlackRock and Fidelity already kind of put their stamp of approval on like the financialization of this this asset class. Um, you know, we're not fighting that battle anymore. So it's just crazy to see how far we've come. It, it, um, look, when regulators say um, being regulated will be good for you, they're they're correct in this regard. It'll be good because normal people, people who aren't obsessed with crypto, <laughs> will will view it as a vote of confidence. And regulators yeah. know this. This is why when they're not comfortable with a new ecosystem, they don't want to get out ahead of themselves and support it by by acknowledging it through a regulatory structure. Because if it's still under if it's still rotten underneath, the regulatory structure is not going to fix it. And then they're blamed for for signaling to everybody that this is um, good. Mm -hmm. Again, but to say come in and get regulated, it's good for you, um, has been more often than not used by by some regulators as a dodge to the more serious question, the important question, regulated how? And they'd like us to just bow out of that conversation and let them just apply whatever they'd want to apply which we're just not inclined to do, nor should we be. Amen. We got to keep fighting the good fight. That's all. And hey, I mean, closely behind the Bitcoin ETF, I have to ask, since you're a consensus mm-hmm. gentleman and scholar, is there an ETH, uh, an ETH or an Ethereum ETF shortly behind it, potentially? Um, I saw there's seven filings for the same structure here. I I don't know. I think the nice thing about consensus is that we are like, purely a software company and not dabbling also in making trying to to play in financial markets as an intermediary like a like a exchange traded product um, issuer would be but i think what you'll see is that those crypto tokens that are more established as investable assets um, and seen as more credible investable assets um Invariably, you will have exchange-traded products on all of them. As to yeah. which ones, I'm not sure. I mean, I view when I when I talk about and when I view like ether, I'm looking at something 
that has value because fundamental value because the Ethereum computer is a valuable machine and you need this ether to put into the slot of the Ethereum computer to make it run. Um, and that's where its value derives from. If uh, people want to ascribe uh, dollar figures to that, um, that's fine. And if people want to sort of buy and hold those Ethereum tokens because they think the market for them will go up in price, perhaps because the Ethereum virtual machine becomes so much more important to the world, that's fine too. How that happens, when that happens, um, I care less about to some degree. But yeah, I'm, all the all the credible assets that um, TradFi's starts to warm up to. I mean, from what I know about the financial system, you'd expect there to be multiple ways to expose yourself to products like that. Yeah, and it sounds like you know, price aside, um, something that you do care about is kind of retaining the core values of decentralization um, as all this regulation kind of trickles through the market. Do um, you think that would be fair to say? And Yes, um, I, I think. Because I think you mentioned that uh, you could foresee a future where some of these big institutions are actually building on the permissionless public chains due to the cost effectiveness and the infrastructure. Society General, SockGen just issued bonds on Ethereum. Right. Like hundreds of millions uh, of dollars worth. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. And so... The Bank of China did too. They tokenized some debt. So these are all sort of like um, sonar pings off the Ethereum ecosystem to see, you know, what it's good for, mm -hmm. what they can, you know, how it works, whether there's any sort of market appetite for further experimentation in it. But that's what we should be. Like these, these within their specifications, these, these programmable blockchains are just white space. Right. Um, what I, what I don't agree with is sort of this sort of religious like dogma around what should and should not be built on these structures. Mm. If it should not be built, the specifications should prohibit it. Mm -hmm. um, and if people are not building to the full permissionless, um, uh, if they're building things which are like protocols or smart contracts or whatever, that are themselves not permissionless, that's fine. You can build a smart contract which can be used by anybody or by nobody. That is up to you. I think it is um, distasteful on one hand and ludicrous on the other to <laughs> have folks insist that only certain types of software should be made on this space in this space, um, and only certain types of people should be using it for certain types of functions. It's big white space. I think it's the market. The market itself is going to dictate the greatest uses. Um, and that's, what's really exciting about it. And, um, you know, if it does succeed, the weird degeny crypto stuff, which is ubiquitous today is going to be the smallest corner yeah. of crypto. And I think frankly, a lot of people are going to be really sad about that. But the point is that corner is probably still going to exist. So, and, and whereas everybody else, there's going to be a new flourishing blockchain based mm -hmm. ecosystem where um, all sorts of actors can build software and offer software built on rails that are more egalitarian in who can participate in building them and maintaining them. That's what this is about. And I think it's really powerful and really inspiring. And 
You know, you don't need to be a dogmatic iconoclast to get into this blockchain stuff. You can see it for what it is and think, man, this stuff is cool. There's something for everybody. And I think that's the, the biggest insight I could hope to offer. Man, I love it. Um, I think that's an incredible note to, to, to kind of end things on. This was a, a tour de force. Um, I just genuinely um, appreciate your time and sharing so much insights on the policy front. Um, just really, you know, kind of views from a guy who's really been on the other side of things, right? Um, so it's been incredible. Um, and I guess the last thing I want to ask before I let you go is just, is there anything that we didn't ask that we should have? Anything that might not be on our radar right now that you're seeing, you're out there on the tip of the spear, something that us crypto guys, us crypto 101 listeners might might actually start needing to pay attention to or learn about? Um, at the fear of getting too technical or wonky, I do think 2024 is in the United States is the first year where we're really confronted head on by um, legislation, which purports to regulate the development and use of blockchain software. There have been in recent reports, um, use of you know hacking and money laundering by north korea there is um some laundering with um by terrorist organizations which i think has been blown way out of proportion compared with how they actually fund themselves right but this is all um added fuel to a fire of like we can't just regulate the intermediaries and then wait on DeFi. we need to do something now and this makes sense because in terms of Fighting illicit finance, U.S. is way out in front on it on um, in most situations in most spaces. The problem is the manner in which they're uh, the the current legislation, in, in many respects, is seeking to do it. Is <clears throat> um, take a very broad brush approach, which greatly chills um, software development and blockchain in the United States and use of software in the United States. Uh, there are a number of different legislative vehicles, um, none of which I'll go into depth in right now, but it for the first time is um, will be a major question for congressional policymakers to consider. I think it's incumbent on everybody in the crypto ecosystem just to be attuned to these currents and to try to productively add to the conversation yeah. on, on my part. I really want people to understand that um, there are, if, if your goal is to eliminate terrorist financing, eliminate um, funding North Korean nuclear missile programs, um, there are cutting out the United States from the crypto ecosystem is not going to serve either purpose. Mm -hmm. All you're going to do is create two ecosystems. One, a highly regulated very centralized ecosystem in the United States and then the rest of the crypto ecosystem out there in the world. Um, and, and I think this is a, a serious issue for 2024 and um, one that uh, I hope, uh, I hope we can have a, a meaningful impact on it. But and the last thing I say, I, I do see it also a tide turning it's important to have permissionless blockchains, but it's also important not to turn a blind eye to the problem of there are good people in the world and there are bad people in the world. And the bad people, should we be okay with bad people using blockchain to further their activity, which hurts good people? 
um, or threatens good countries, or worse, have the bad people actively hunt good people online and victimize them online. Are we just okay with this? Do we say, oh, it's the law of the jungle, it's this Hobbesian reality which we're trying to construct and force the world to adopt? I don't think that's the way it's going to end one way or another. And I think it's putting blinders on. Um, and, and, and so it creates another existential question. The purpose of these chains to some degree is to prevent censorship. But the problem is you're letting a fox into the hen house. Mm-hmm. And if you're okay with that, then we got a bigger problem on our hands. Um, And I think it really goes to it's an existential problem for crypto, because if we don't solve these problems, the powers that be will and their solutions will not be elegantly tailored. They'll be broadswords. And, um, you know, we can have faith that crypto will just soldier on and and grow into a world changing behemoth. Otherwise, but that's not how history plays out generally. Yeah, I hope that we look back on this battle. Um, as kind of like the crypto wars of like, you know, the, the late nineties, early two thousands, where there were good men and good women fighting the good fight to make it so that cryptography and encryption was, was legal, right. To make, you know, to make it legal and to secure internet applications and and passwords and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the government wanted to ban encryption and, and said it was military grade technology and stuff. And so I'm hopeful that you know, again, that the people will rise up and, and fight the good fight for, for human sovereignty and, and civil rights. And, you know, at the end of the day, policy is made by people. It doesn't just pop out of thin air. And it takes guys like mm-hmm. you, Bill Hughes, and, and all the other people in D.C. and Arlington and everything taking care of us, you know, and, and fighting for us. So we, again, we we appreciate you taking the the hour out of your schedule. I know you got a million things to do. We're going to let you go back. But, um, yeah, thanks for fighting the good fight and for informing us. And we sincerely uh, invite you back anytime you like. Um, we, we would love to have you back on. There's there's so much to cover. But um, for now, Bill, we uh, we hope that we chat with you again. And we'd love also for you to leave your uh, Twitter handle or maybe a blog sure. or whatever um, so we could attach that in the show notes. Uh, where could people stay in touch? Uh, at Bill Hughes DC is where I'm on Twitter. Uh, we just created a new regulatory webpage on the consensus.io website. A lot of our writing, a lot of my writing is there, especially. Um, I'm frequently in Coindesk. They asked me to write stuff. And then uh, I'm sure as we go, more and more of my stuff will be uploaded to YouTube as I do podcasts and panel experiences. But it's been great talking with you guys. Um, you have a great show. I love the enthusiasm and I love the sincere interest. I think it's it's um, it's great to see the ecosystem having resources like you all because it's important that we all take it seriously and, and learn as we go. Thank you. Much appreciated. All right, everybody at home listening, hope you guys had fun and uh, we'll catch you guys same time, same place next week. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.